If you would, I'd love for you to stand with me as we read together. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to get down to uh, verse 12. We'll eventually get through it all, but I do want to read some of it together. And then uh, I'm not as mean as Chris to make you stand and read 40-something verses like Chris did last week. Um, Anyway, I'm just kidding. All right, so verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of God and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink for them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on a plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but could not read the writing um, or make it known to the king the interpretation. Then King Balshazar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and the lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king into uh, the lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in the kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, and the light of um, the light and understanding, wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can you turn the lights up just a little bit? Is John back there? Make it a little bit brighter. I can't see. I'm getting old. So I'm going to pray. And then we will, there we go, oh, there we go. I have to have light. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will, we will jump in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Um, I pray that you would um, help us this morning as we look into your word to give us wisdom and insight, of course, uh, for how to apply it to our lives, um, to how to understand it. But greater than that, God, would you en- uh, enhance our love for Jesus through this text? Would you cause us to see Christ in Daniel chapter 5 and be thankful for the good news of Jesus dying us, for us on the cross? Um, I pray that as we see over the course of this chapter that there is a need to always be remorseful for sin in our lives, that we would, we would see that and want to uh, make that known in our own life and have that happen uh, and that you would fill us with the Spirit and give us great understanding. And of course, God, I pray if anyone here doesn't know you, that you would save them. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start off with a little puzzle. Puzzle time. So put up that first slide. Uh, can anybody figure that out? See, whenever you read that and you're like, ah, I don't know what that is because I, I can't read without vowels. Uh, so when you're looking at that, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I don't know what that means. And so I would need for someone to explain it to me. Well, that's what's going on with the king here. As a matter of fact, all right, so this is, that's the transliterated. I'll, I'll put it in English. But still, though, can you read that? No, go back, go back, go back to the other one. That's, that's Aramaic, but transliterated. Go to the, to, go to the second one. So here, here it is in English, but still, can you figure it out? This is basically what just appeared in front of the king, Belshazzar, as he's drinking uh, out of the, the vessels. That big, huge thing appeared there, and 
It scared him to death because an actual hand started writing it in front of him, and he didn't know what it meant, and he needed to know. So that's where we are. Something like this appears, that's, that's kind of the English version of it, appears in front of him, and so he's absolutely freaking out. Now, um, you can go back to the t- title. All right, so I want you to see something with me. If you go b- back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, when we got to the end of Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, there was this little hint that the writer Daniel put in there to make sure we understood. This happened, you know, chapter 1 happened very early in Daniel's life, uh, but what we do know is it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel outlasted King ba- the king of Babylon and out- outlasted the entire Babylonian empire. Well, whenever we're getting from four into five, we're getting towards the close of the Babylonian empire. And by the time we finish chapter five, Babylonian empire is, is coming to an end and the uh, Medo-Persian Empire is about to begin. And so it was prophesied in chapter 2, and here we go, starting in, in chapter 5. So last week, where we had Nebuchadnezzar, you know, basically becoming an animal for at least seven years and running around and having some kind of kingdom restored to him in some kind of manner. And if you remember, at the end of 2, at the end of 3, at the end of 4, it starts out with the king. He's really terrible, and he's really proud of himself, and he thinks he's awesome. In some kind of manner, something happens. And at the very end, the king kind of makes a declaration at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 3, the end of chapter 4, about how great Yahweh is and how he's basically wrong. Uh, And so we would expect that same kind of pattern as we're going through, but here we're going to see what's going on. So at the end of of chapter 4, as we saw last week, um, God made him basically run around like an animal for seven years just to humble him. He comes back in. It has this amazing kind of little statement here at the end of chapter 4 from 34 down to 37. And there's debate, like, did Nebuchadnezzar really become a follower of Yahweh? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Chris and I are like, we don't know. We, talk, we were texting yesterday. We don't know. So 24 years later is from verse, 30, 20, uh, verse 4, 24 to 5.1. So remember, Daniel's not necessarily covering a lot of chronolo- chronological stuff. He's just hitting the high points. And so from chapter 4 into chapter 25, 24 years later, Daniel is a whole lot older now. And then we have King Belshazzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Uh, and King Belshazzar is the king over Bab- Babylon now. One, one writer says this. He says, the only thing we learn from history is that we have learned nothing from history. Uh, and, which is very true in a lot of senses, right? Um, and this is what's absolutely true of Belshazzar. He, he knows kind of the Babylonian history. He knows the things that God has taught Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to see is he absolutely learns nothing. He was unteachable. And um, as Nebuchadnezzar was brought low at the end of 2, 3, and 4, um, and, uh, and there's a refrain at the end where finally, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's like, the only real God is, is Yahweh. Well, at the end of 5, we're kind of expecting the new king to learn the same lesson, but he's not going to. So King Belshazzar, and you're thinking, okay, wait, who's Belshazzar? This is a new character. Well, he is. Um, he's the new king in town. Uh, as I said, it's 24 years later, uh, around... It's now about 539 B.C. when we're starting chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562. And so there's a gap of whatever that is, uh, 23 years. And so there was a lot of clamoring for Nebuchadnezzar's job. His son, his son Merodach, if you're looking for baby names, I'm about to list out a bunch of them here. Uh, His son Merodach had the job for a little while. uh, But he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nerigalazar. And so 
after Neregulazar held it for about four years, um, he gave it to his weak son, Labashi. Um, Labashi held it for a month. He didn't last very long because there were some conspirators that killed Labashi and Nabonius came king. Uh, well, Nabonius, this is really, this is actually the truth. Nabonius, they, they worship many gods, but their favorite was Marduk. And so uh, Nabonius was like, I really like this guy, Seen. I like Seen better than Marduk. And they was like, okay, well, you're going to, as king, be sent about 500 miles away from here to the Arabian desert. Have fun. Uh, and so they, they re- remove him and stick him over in exile over in the Arabian desert. And so Nabonius' son gets to become the king. And that is Belshazzar. That is Belshazzar. Now, likely Nabonius was Nebuchadnezzar's son, which means Belshazzar uh, is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. It's going to call him his dad, but it's just common in, in uh, Hebrew parlance or Hebrew vernacular to say your father, but you can also kind of mean your grandfather. So here he's going to say that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is his father, but Nebuchadnezzar is actually his grandfather. So um, here we have King Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, throwing, you can see this, there was a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. The In front of the thousand, you're like, well, so what? Well, generally, it was more like they would have like a party uh, and you would drink in front of just a, a choice few. And then you would, after you do that, you would go out and you would be with everybody. But he just doesn't care. He's going to drink in front of everybody. Uh, apparently, that's a big deal, but who cares? So uh, he drank wine in front of them. Uh, and basically what the writer's trying to help us see is that he has become intoxicated. And so uh, while he's intoxicated, um, he's going to do something that's going to enrage God, that's going to enrage the Lord. So if you flip back over with me at chapter 1, uh, I want you to see this. If you flip back over in chapter 1 and go to verse 2. Uh, go to verse 2. This is whenever Israel was actually a kingdom. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So this is when the Babylonians took over the southern land of Judah. And you have this Jehoiakim, which was the, the king of Judah at the time. And it says, with some of, here it is, with some of the vessels of the house of God. So he took some of basically just like drinking cups, special ones, right? He took the vessels Babylonians did, and it says, and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels, put them in the treasury. That's it. At least there's some respect happening here for, the, for the, the vessels that were from the temple of God. So the people of God, Israelites, like these are important. They're only supposed to be used in times of worship in the temple. And any kind of use of this, because they, in some measure, like the Ark of the Covenant, represent the presence of God to us in some kind of way. Well, fast forward towards the end of Babylon here. Well, what does, what does King Belshazzar do? Takes them out of the treasury. And it says, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of God and silver of Nebuchadnezzar's father be taken out of the temple of Jerusalem and be brought to him. And so it's just like, we defeated Israel a long time ago, and now we're just going to mock them and blaspheme Yahweh because we don't care. Bring those out here, and everybody here, the lords, the concubines, the wives, everybody can drink out of the vessels. That's the key issue that God doesn't like. That's the big thing that, that Belshazzar does that really makes Yahweh mad. As a matter of fact, if you look over at 22:23, we see exactly what the charge is is you're not humble and you didn't honor God. 
That's what God basically is telling him. You're not humble and you didn't honor God. And whenever you remove the vessels, as it says in verse 3, and brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of God and the house of Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And here it is. They drank wine and then it says this. They praised the gods of gold, silver. So they had some kind of doxology, not to God, the real and only one true God, whose vessels they were using, but these, they, they even praised you know, gods that don't exist and said that they're the greatest thing. That's the key issue here that, that uh, Yahweh doesn't like. And so we're going to see three different things that we're going to, the writing's on the wall, I couldn't help but make that the title. So um, go, to, go to point number one. So defiance. The first thing we're going to see is Belshazzar's defiance. Defiance in the face of God. Right in the face of God, he doesn't care. Now, these three things that we're going to look at are going to help you see how God brings the rebellious low. Like, Belshazzar is re- massively rebellious, and he's going to bring him low. And there's, there's kind of these stages of sinning and being caught in sin and being made known to your sin and receiving judgment that we're going to go through. And we're going to see the, the kind of the stages of the rebellious being brought low. And it's a super uplifting sermon. Uh, so as we go through it, I certainly would try to draw applications for us all as we see this and look at it in light of the cross, uh, look at it in light of the gospel. But here we have this absolute defiance in the face of God. He's caught by doing this. And so in point number A, you can go and put up number A. I don't know if y'all can see that. We probably can make it bigger. Um, Not right now, though. So God, God sees our sin. The major problem, as I said, is that he's drinking of these vessels of gold. One writer says Belshazzar was uh, not just a drunken slob, but a profane drunken slob. Uh, he is blaspheming God by using these vessels. Um, another writer says that he was just treating the vessels like they were just common utensils, and they weren't. They were placed in the treasury by Nebuchadnezzar. A pagan guy had at least some understanding that these things were important and they shouldn't be used for just common use, or especially for basically a massive house party. Um, and so they, they had these things, and they're using them, and when they, by using them, they're showing contempt for Yahweh. They're showing contempt for the God of Israel. And they're literally giving their worship, as it says in verse 4, to the wrong God. They're, they're praising gods that don't exist um, instead of the one true God. And so he transgressed uh, against God. He transgressed massively, and he committed blasphemy, spiritual blindness, etc. Now, the truth is that we do the same thing, that we are just like Belshazzar, that God gives us numerous gifts, numerous gifts, and instead of using them for his glory, we'll show our contempt for God and not use the, and honor the gift that he gives us, from food to our possessions to our marriage, which are all gifts, and then anything else you want to fill in, in between those things. We can take those things and use them for our own glory instead of for God's. And God gives us these precious gifts, um, not just to use for our own glory, but instead to use for his. Not ju- take out the word just. We aren't supposed to use them for our own glory, but for his. And when God sees this, he makes it known to us. We're without excuse. And so God sees our sin whenever we do it. And then go to point B. God uh, will appear to make known our sin to us. This is what happens as we see verse 5 through 9. He makes it known. Now, for Belshazzar, it's immediate. Sometimes it's immediate for us, sometimes it's not. But you can see, what's the very first word of verse 5? There it is. Immediately. There's no, there's no lag time here in the rebellion of Belshazzar that God's going to put up with. God acts right away, immediately. The fingers of a human hand appeared before him. So this sounds kind of scary. Um, and it's exactly like an actual just hand appears in front of him and starts writing 
on the wall. The same hand that wrote the Ten Commandments is writing some words to basically the puzzle I just showed you uh, before we started. Starts writing this on the wall. Now, of course, it was an Aramaic and written backwards, but you get the idea. Um, and then that's why we have this, this uh, <laughs> descriptive uh, change in the king's demeanor from massively intoxicated to a fast sober up, if you look in verse 6. So immediately the king's, the, you see this writing on the plaster wall, and it says, and the king's color changed. Instant sobriety granted to Belshazzar here. And it says, and his thoughts alarmed him, I would imagine. His limbs gave way. His limbs gave way is literally, and this is where it gets awesome, uh, a la King Elon, uh, or Ehud, uh, the knots of his loins were loosed, means he pooped his pants. Um, so he, he changes, that's why I guess why he changed colors. He empties his own bowels, he's so scared. Uh, and then you can see after that, and his knees knocked together. Um, if there's anything that Belshazzar gets right, and this is literally, I think, the only thing, if there's anything that Belshazzar gets right in the entire chapter, it's this that he trembles before a holy God. That's about it. There's nothing else that he gets right. But he does at least tremble before God. Uh, Dale Davis says, This is an opportunity for Belshazzar. Whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, smashing all of his props and wasting all of his idol, it's a favorable moment indeed, if he will but see it. He's not going to see it, but this is a favorable moment. And it's a great thing for us when God finally slams us into our head and says, Hey, this, what you're doing is wrong. You've been brought to a place of repentance. You can keep down this path or you can, you can divert and repent. That's a good time. It, it feels terrible in the, in the midst of it, obviously, but it is ultimately one of the best things for us. So he's scared, and then we run into the same old story in verses 7, 8, and 9, like, like Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, I need someone to figure this out. Can anybody figure it out? Well, nobody can figure it out. Well, let's, oh, there's, maybe there's this guy, Daniel. Um, so it's kind of the same old story. But the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, bring in all the people. Whoever reads this writing, I'm going to give them a surprise, a big, a big thing. And I'll, I'll even make them third ruler in the kingdom. You know, there's Nabonius, who's in exile. There's me, and he'll be third. Like, he'll be right after me. All the king's wise men came in. Nobody could do it. And then he's greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Uh, on and on. It's kind of back to the same old story, uh, but he responds carnally. He reverts back to idols. Dale Davis says, where does one turn in such moments? Why, instead of to God, he of course turns to religion, of course. This is what Belshazzar does. Bring in the enchanters, bring in the Chaldeans. Maybe these sorcerers can give me the idea. Um, Belshazzar, that's, he turned to his faith. He hollered, he hollered for conjurers, Chaldeans, the astrologers, to come in and interpret this mysterious text. So these losers came traipsing in again. Once more they fail. And Belshazzar's alarm only intensifies as it shows in verse 9. This is sometimes God's pattern to aggravate our helplessness by exposing the uselessness of our favorite props. Even our favorite religious props may also have your paganism of choice. Things like occultism, pluralism, uh, machoism, uh, feminism, agnosticism, moralism. But they all serve and will prove to be as petrifyingly useless as the Babylonian variety. Uh, so whenever we have problems happening in our life, where do we turn? Are we like him and just turn to fake things? Or do we turn to the only true God who can deliver us? Well, um, he does not do that. He turns to these particular guys uh, and they can't help him out at all. Well, it seems like everything's 
going to be pretty much over and he's going to have this, this big unsolved mystery in front of his face and who knows what the impending future brings except for, go ahead and put up number two, we're going to have some, uh, some relief. So we're going to see desperation in the face of confrontation, the rebellious sinner confronted. He's desperate and then he has, you know, really uh, a big help with the queen. But whenever the queen comes in, instead of not knowing what the message says, he's actually going to be confronted the message on the wall that we just read is going to confront him for his sin. He's going to ha- finally have it made to him. So if you get to verse 10, this is just a side note, but we've been talking about chiastic structures and chapters. I didn't do it this time, but you know, you start with the end and the beginning as they move, like the middle point of the chiasm is like the most important point. One, one writer says that the queen here, uh, the queen's speech from 10 to 13 is the chiasm, or 10 to 12. That's the most important part of the chapter. Might be, might be. Um, But uh, one writer does say this, she's unnamed and she's completely pivotal, that without the queen mother coming and saying something, um, then we have no idea where where, uh, this chapter is going. As a matter of fact, one writer says, everything in the story depends on her intrusion. You need to get Daniel. Without Daniel, then what are you going to do? So there's what happens. Queen... This is not his, uh, his wife. This is probably his mother, uh, Nabonius' wife, uh, because she actually can remember all the details of Daniel, and so that probably wasn't Belshazzar's wife. It says, the queen, because of the words of the kings and lords, came into the banqueting hall, that you can just uh, literally call that the house of drinking. Um, thought that was interesting. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. They love to say that. It's been over and over said. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians and enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers. And here it is. This is a great description. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel. And so... This, this piece of information is, is absolutely crucial. Whom the king named Belshazzar. Not Belshazzar, which they're quite close. You know, the T's the key. And then uh, let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. And so um, whenever you're desperate, you can go to number A there for me. Uh, God's going to confront us with wisdom. And I say wisdom because the queen, uh, who's likely his mother, who's lived life and can remember history uses her wisdom to try to help solve the problem. Uh, so she has wisdom because she's able to tell him about this guy, Daniel. Who's, she's been around long enough over the 30 years where Daniel used to interpret, 30 years ago where Daniel used to interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. She's recalling this wisdom and saying, hey, you should use it. God sometimes does that. Like he confronts us with wisdom. Look at Proverbs, read Proverbs 1 and 2. Write that down. Read Proverbs 1 and 2 and see the beckoning of the Holy Spirit, God himself, calling you in to have wisdom so that you can understand things. Um, and so that's, what, that's what's going on here. Um, there, there should be a, a great uh, push for us in our own lives to want to be instructed and understand things. As Proverbs 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So God is going to confront him with the queen, reminding him of Daniel, and then Daniel's going to come in and confront him right away. Well, this is pretty awesome, all right? So, um, first, uh, verse 13. 
Daniel. And this is where God confronts us with wisdom, with the queen, but also God confronts us with his word. You can go ahead and put that up too. God confronts us with his word. He does the same for you, right? Sometimes if, if you know you're in sin, God confronts you with wisdom by bringing one of your favorite people or someone you highly respect. They've, they're seeing the path you're walking down and they're like, hey, I see what you're about to do. You should listen to me. Here's the way to avoid this massive thing that's going to really mess your life up. Or just this word. You'll be reading his word one day and you'll just be utterly convicted about something going on in your life. God, con- God confronts us in all kinds of ways. But here, he's, he's going to use both wisdom and the word. And when I say the word, I mean Daniel represents the word. Because he is the word of God to this particular person. Now, here's where it gets awesome. Because Daniel's in his 80s. Daniel's older. And you know how whenever people get into their 80s, they just don't care anymore? You're like, I don't, I'm just going to tell you how I think. And you can just you can deal with it. Um, Daniel's a holy man, but, but he's still in his 80s. And so he just doesn't care anymore. It's like he, there's, a, there's a bit of a different tone that Daniel takes with Belshazzar, the Nebuchadnezzar. If you go back and read 2, 3, and 4, he, he talks to Nebuchadnezzar, but you know, he, he gives him, etc. But with Belshazzar, he's just like, you stink, here's why. And he doesn't care. Keep your stuff. Keep your stuff. So um, it's pretty awesome. And... Uh, in this instance, you're going to see, hey, Daniel, explain the riddle. Help me understand the riddle. And so he doesn't help him understand the riddle right away. First, he just tells him why he's bad. And then he's like, okay, now I'll tell you the riddle. Um, so I like, I, like, I like 80-year-old Daniel a lot. So Daniel was brought before the king. Um, and it says, the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel. Interesting, right? He calls him Daniel and not Belshazzar. I found that interesting. Um, one of the exiles of Judah. A lot of commentators says that's a dig. Like, hey, remember we beat you a long time ago. You're one of those exiles of Judah. Could be, it could just be that he's just identifying him. But it could be the dig that makes Daniel so mad. And he's like, all right, I'm 80-year-old Daniel. Um, but who knows? Um, whom, <laughs> whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. And in that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. I just want to stop here and... I've already pointed this out uh, in in verse 12, but now we're seeing it again in 14. And this is just a small little side note. How great would it be when we're in our 80s and the thing that's known about us is these kind of descriptors. Oh, you're one of those people that really, really knows the Lord, that wisdom and understanding resides in. Light, uh, when I think about you, I think about how much you follow the Lord and love the Lord. I think that's a good goal for us. Back to it. All right. Um, verse 15, now the wise man and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show me the interpretation on the matter. Uh, but I have heard that you can give interpretations to solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, here's all the stuff you get. Uh, you'll be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he promises all this stuff. So, uh, Dale, Dale Davis sees this. And he writes this. This is, this is pretty awesome how he points it to Christ immediately. He goes, in Daniel 5, the only hope of Belshazzar was a cast-off Jew uh, whose God he despised. And the same is true for us. Our only hope is a cast-off Jew, Jesus, whose God most of the world despises, uh, which is him himself. Our only hope is the cast-off Jew by the Pharisees and whom God they despised. Namely, Jesus. And so God brings Daniel, the man, the prophet, representing his word, to confront Belshazzar and confront him with his word. What will we do when God confronts us um, with the word of God regarding our sin? 
hopefully we will see Jesus and will rejoice. Daniel is a foreshadowing of Jesus here. Daniel is the despised Jew. Jesus was the despised, cursed Jew that hung on the tree for us. When God confronts us with our sin, hopefully we see our sin, we repent of our sin immediately, and we put all of our hope and trust in Christ because he's already paid the price for us. What we can see for sure here is that Belshazzar is desperate. He's absolutely desperate. He's sobered up quick. He has this message on the wall, and he wants to know what's going on, and he's willing to even offer massive rewards to whoever can interpret this puzzle for him. Third ruler in the kingdom shows just how desperate he is. Going to offer third ruler of the kingdom to a Jewish person, um, somebody that they had taken, you know, some 70 years ago. Now, his desperation is misplaced. Is misplaced. He just wants to know what the puzzle says. He doesn't want to change. He just wants to know what the puzzle says because he's scared. And so, as we see this desperation in Belshazzar, we need to learn from it that when we're desperate and we've been confronted with our sin and we're actually called to change, we're being called to repent of sin, not just merely know that we're a sinner, but repent of our sin, which he does not do. We should do that. In Isaiah chapter 47, it was prophesied about Belshazzar, and it was true. It says this, You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you do not know how to charm it away. Disaster shall fall upon you, uh, for which you will not be able to atone. Shall ru- and ruin shall come upon you, and suddenly of which you know nothing." Now, this is what was the true of Belshazzar. And it's also true of us outside of Christ. But the Lord also went on and prophesied about Jesus. And this is what Jesus did for us. When we were dead in our sin like that, here's what Jesus did. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces and were despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way, everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so like Belshazzar, when we recognize that we're a sinner, we should feel desperate but not just to have knowledge, but when we gain an understanding, when we're confronted by wisdom or word, or however we're confronted and we recognize that we're a sinner, the, the need to repent from our sin and turn to Jesus is what's necessary. And so we should desire that. We should deeply desire that. Not just because, um, like him, I just need to know the puzzle, but because eternal life is being offered to us in the face of Christ. So that brings us to number three. Desperation in the face of confrontation, well, here comes judgment. Darkness in the face of judgment. It's darkness because there is no repentance in Belshazzar's mind and heart and life. And so this rebellious sinner is going to be judged when you get to verse 17. Here it is. And this is 80-year-old Daniel, I love it. Uh, Especially 17 through uh, 23. Uh, He doesn't get to the interpretation right away. He says all this stuff at first. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another person. I don't want your stuff. I'm glad I'm here. I have a few things to get off my chest. Um, Nevertheless, I'll read the writing and make known to him the interpretation. He says, I'm going to interpret to you, but I need to tell you a couple things about you first. So 
Um, I think this is pretty awesome that he doesn't want the rewards. Uh, and it, which follows 18 through 23 is not the interpretation. It's, the interpretation doesn't come until 24. So what does he do? He tells him specifically how he sinned first. You need to know how you've sinned, Belshazzar. And then I'll get to the interpretation. So number A, yeah, perfect. God diagnoses our heart like no one else. Daniel is going to diagnose Belshazzar's heart right in front of him before he even gives him the interpretation. And here it is. O king, uh, now he's referring to God here, uh, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Just reiterating this thing we've seen over and over and over. No one is in any particular uh, type of leadership in any country in any time period ever unless God has placed him there. God puts everybody where they are at all times, and he's totally sovereign over it. And he removes them at any time he wants. And so he's reminding them, Nebuchadnezzar had this position because of God, the most high God. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled it and feared before him. Um, Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought low from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. We've seen this over 2, 3, and 4, especially 4, where he was brought low. Literally made like an animal and ran around for seven years. He was driven among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox in his body with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over whom he will. Remember how proud Nebuchadnezzar was? Look at everything I've done. And God's like, we've already told you in chapter 2 and 3 about these statues. You can go down at any moment. Okay, go be a, go be a beast. Uh, and so he's reminding him all these things. And now he's at verse 22. And he goes, you, his son Belshazzar. And remember, 22 and 23 or the diagnosis of two through four, whenever he takes the vessels and mocks God and praises the gods of gold, silver. And 22 and 23 and 4, I'm sorry, verse 22 and 23 are the diagnosis of two, three, two, three, and four. Like, here's what you did wrong. And I want you to notice, Sinclair Ferguson points this out. In 22 and 23, what we're about to read, the word you, even in the Hebrews, 14 times. Like, like a machine gun hitting him of all the sins that he's done. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and of gold. Just absolute arrogance here. Um, And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, uh, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, that is astounding, and who are all your ways, you have not honored. You have not honored him. And so Daniel shows the king here. You can go ahead and put up number one. Daniel shows the king that everything comes from God, including his position as Nebuchadnezzar. And then go to number two. Uh, Daniel shows the king that he rebelled against God. He says, you lifted yourself against me. Go to number three, Daniel shows the king that he's worshipped idols when he says you praise the God of silver. And go to number four, Daniel shows that the king has not honored Yahweh when you've honored these other things. It's Romans 121 before Romans 121 was written. Romans 121 says, for all they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
And this is what's going on. They did not honor God as they ought. Instead, they just worshiped themselves. Serious offenses against God. And God, through Daniel, has diagnosed the king's heart perfectly. And he was insolent and he was brazen in his sin. So when we see this regarding King Belshazzar some, you know, 2,500 years ago, we should immediately let us caution us. We should let these things help us see that we should thank God for the provisions that he's given to us. We should live accordingly and not lift ourselves against him, not rebel against him, but instead give our lives over to Christ and worship and honor him and give him the glory for all the things that happen to us. Notice even the titles that God is mentioned as we look in those those, that diagnosis. He calls him the Most High God in 18 and 21. He calls him the Lord of Heaven in 23. And as I said in 23, the God whose hand is in your breath. So we should, we should remember just how powerful God is and just how lowly we are before this God. And he's wanting him to remind these things. Now, Daniel did all this uh, so far, and he hasn't done one thing the kings ask yet. <laughs> I want to know the puzzle. And he just lets him know all these things that he's done wrong first. And then he's going to give it to him. And we can assume that verses 17 through 23, the diagnosis of the king's heart, is actually more important than just having answers or the puzzle answered. So it's true for us, right? It's important for us to understand things fully. But whenever we're confronted with our sin, it's more important that that we understand that and that we repent of it. We'll gain further understanding as we go along and all the things. But um, the most important part is repentance. Then, verse 24, uh, from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Now, uh, you can see it, mine, mine, Tekel Parson, except there wasn't vowels and it was probably an Aramaic. So that was what I put up on the screen at the very beginning. The, the MN, MN, TKL, PRSN, it was an Aramaic. Uh, but the, the other one was in English, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And that's basically what's going on here. So he says these things to him. You want to know what, the, what the, screen or the, the writing on the wall said? Here's what it said, but here's what it means. It said, mean, mean, tekel, parson. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know what that means. Well, you can look down in your little thing and see that a mean is Aramaic for numbered. Tekel is the sound like Aramaic for weighed. And Perez or parson is the singular parson. It sounds like Aramaic for divided. But what does that mean? Here's what it means to you, Belshazzar, and it's not good. Now, mean, mean said twice just for emphasis. It only needed to be said once, but he said it uh, twice. It means numbered. In other words, hey, king, not just you, but your kingdom's days are numbered. As in, we're talking super short. You'll see in just a second. Super short. Not only that, but weighed. You've been weighed. We've heard the phrase, you're a lightweight probably where this comes from. You're a lightweight king. You're not a good king. You've been numbered. Your days are numbered. You've also been weighed or you've been weighed and found wanting. You're a lightweight. You are not a good king. Divided. And this is Parson or the Perez is the singular plural of Parson. And basically is your kingdom's about to be divided to the Medes and the Persians. And it's about to happen pretty fast. So the application for us as we look at this is that we remember even though it's written about Belshazzar, it's for God's people. The Bible is for God's people. Mean, mean, tekel, parson is written about Belshazzar, but God's people read this, and they're not supposed to just read it and say, yeah, get Belshazzar. (laughs) We're supposed to read it and say, okay, that was him, 
but how does, how does mean, mean, tekel, parson apply to me? What is it that I'm doing? Am I numbered, numbered, weighed, divided? Well, I think this is helpful. Brian Chappell says, Daniel's message should be moved to a focal distance for us so that we can read the writing on the wall of real life, power, position, prestige, peer approval, wealth, wisdom, wonderful potential, amazing accomplishments. Even esteem in the church will not shield us from an all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God who brings every dark thing to light and judges sin. The name changes, the situations vary, like from people to people, but the consequences do not. The judgment of God is sure, and God still whispers, mean, mean, tekel, Perez, or Parson. So we as the American church should be cautioned because he sees our sin that we're in. And he sees it and he confronts us and he doesn't want us to have it going on. God makes sure the king understands exactly the writing that he gave. Um, In verse 29, it says that he gives the command. So as we keep reading, he says, here's the interpretation for mean, mean, tekel, parson. Mean, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed and the balance has been found in wanting. 28, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians, which we've read. And then it says, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and chain of gold and put around his neck and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he makes this command, uh, even though the consequences are coming, he gives us all this stuff to, to Daniel. And this like, uh, this this great promotion, it's like being promoted to the CEO of a company that's going bankrupt tomorrow. Like, well, it means nothing. Like, here's all the stuff. You're third in command of something that's about to end. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, so I don't know why Daniel took it. Uh, it was interesting. He's like, you can keep your stuff. And then he took it. Uh, maybe he just figured he could be a person of influence in the kingdom for the next couple hours. Uh, but who knows? Uh, it's not very, very long. Uh, but he takes it. But what we're going to see as we get to verse 30, though, go ahead and put up number C there. God gives judgment for our sin, and it's going to happen right here. So if you look at verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, was killed. Um, And when you see was killed, it's written in the passive sense, right? It's written in the passive verb. And so uh, writers will say this is the divine passive, as in uh, he was killed, but God did it. God, just so you know, God's the one that made sure Belshazzar died here. Um, somebody did it, but it was because God allowed it to happen. So that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, was killed, the divine passive. Um, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom about being, and he was about 62 years old. Now, if you remember, we saw that King Cyrus was mentioned in 121, and this is Darius. That's likely just the same person. Problem solved there. Um, so anyway... Back to this was killed. That very night, this means that the king's unrepentant heart was called on that very night. That very night it happened. Um, the same thing happens in the parable in, in Luke chapter 12. Uh, the man's like, I'm going to build builder, big, builder, bigger stuff. I've got everything. And like, that very night, it, it was all over. What are you going to do? Um, and so when he was killed uh, as the divine passive, it's ultimately assigning the judgment of God came upon him instantly. And since there was no repentance, then he received his just due. Now, as I said, at the end of two and the end of three and the end of four, we have this kind of refrain back where Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson. Not here in five. If four and five are parallel, where four is good because it has that kind of thing, five is bad where Belshazzar doesn't repent. Belshazzar, nothing happens. Uh, He just gets the immediate punishment right away. Now, 
If you remember last week, this is just a little side history note. This is pretty awesome. When Chris was preaching, uh, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went out and he surveyed his entire kingdom. He's like, it's huge. It's impenetrable. These walls are impregnable. These things are awesome. Um, genius human ingenuity is what got the Medo-Persian Empire in there because Chris said there was a river that ran through it. What they did, this is incredible patience, they went over to the river Euphrates outside of this massive empire and diverted the water for, into another reservoir over the course of many, many days until the, the riverbed was so low that while these people are partying and drinking it up and having this big thing because they thought they were secure in, inside these big walls. I don't know who built it or who paid for it. But um, while they're inside these big walls. As the riverbed runs dry, the Medo-Persian Empire would just water up to their knees are able to go in through and just destroy all of them as they're partying away thinking that they're secure. It's just such an amazing kind of illustration for our life, right? We think that everything's fine. We think that our life is good. But sin can enter in and destroy us at any moment. And that's what happens here. Um, they thought that they were totally secure, but they weren't. Brian Chapel warns, beware, because there is no human wall so high, no human fortress so secure, and no activity so hidden that it can protect itself from the wrath of God. The king did not have ears to hear from Daniel. Um, but... Here's the good news. We don't have to be like the king. Because God, if you're in Christ, has actually given us a new heart to hear. It, the, new the new covenant in the Old Testament was written this way in Ezekiel 11. And I will give them all a new heart and a new spirit I'll put with them. I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. So if you're in Christ... You actually don't have to live in total fear like Belshazzar because you've been given a new heart. So when people confront you with wisdom in the word and you hear it, because you've been given a new heart, it should be soft to receive this and we should be quick to repent from our sin. We shouldn't be hard-hearted and slow towards repentance. Instead, because nothing can protect us from the wrath of God, but Christ has taken the wrath of God for us and given us a new heart and now we can be quick to repent of our sin. We should praise the Lord that he's given us this new heart and it's come only because of Jesus. The power to receive truth when it comes to us has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. He's been graciously um, uh, amazing to us by giving this to us. James Boyce says it this way. I love this. God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place, taking the full punishment of our sin upon himself. Jesus has made it possible for God to apply his righteousness now to our account because we re he repented. We have no righteousness of our own, not as God counts righteousness, but God takes those scales, the, brushes our evil deeds aside and, punish, and puts all the punishment on Jesus Christ in our behalf. And on the other side of the scales now places himself. The scales swing back. And if you're in Christ, you're now justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Not of your own works, not of your own doing, because there's nothing that we can do. But those who are in Christ now, because of Jesus the scales swing back and we are declared righteous and holy before God because Christ Jesus has given his life for us. And we should thank the Lord, even right now, you should thank the Lord that he's done this for us. He's given now, after we've been justified, given us the Holy Spirit and we have the Spirit to obey the good news, to trust in the gospel and to um, continually be in his word so that we can be transformed continually by his word. All believers in Jesus can worship God rightly. That's an amazing thing. We don't have to be like Belshazzar and have misplaced worship. All believers can worship God rightly. Belshazzar 
learned the hard way that God was the most high. Praise the Lord that we are in Christ, don't have to learn the hard way, but we actually have the way, the Lord Jesus. One writer says this, he can bring down the most wicked king, he can destroy the mightiest evil empire, he can bring down the most vicious terrorist, our sovereign God is in control of human history, and one day he will destroy all human kingdoms and replace them with his perfect kingdom. He will restore paradise on earth as he intended this world to be from the beginning. Our sovereign God is in control. Our destiny and that of our children and our grandchildren and all of God's people in his mighty hand will uh, be under the hand of God. That is absolute, solid comfort from Daniel 5. So how does Daniel chapter 5 point us to Jesus? How does Daniel chapter 5 point us to Jesus? Um, Well, God, uh, first off, is comforting his people of Israel by showing them that this king who seemingly is in control is not and that he is. When Daniel says nobody is in power unless God places them there, that's a comfort for their people whenever they're walking through difficult times, even in our own country, whether we like our leadership or don't like our leadership, whether we like it now or we liked it before, whoever's in control, we can say, well, if if they're there, God's put them there. And so... This, this person that's over us, whether it be local or state or national or the world, um, they're there because God's put them there, and we can be comforted to know that God's totally in control here. And so God can bring us comfort. Uh, the second thing is that this, in 121, I said that there was this prophetic promise that was made to us in the text that Daniel actually remained through all of Babylon. And Daniel was there until the first, ki- first year of King Cyrus, which means he outlasted the, the fearless you know, Babylonians. They were ruthless, but Israelites outlasted them, and they were forced to trust God with their fears. We, we don't know how we're going to make it through Babylon, but if God says it's going to happen, we see that it does, and he keeps his promises. Um, moreover, we see at the very end of chapter 2 and 3, the coming doom of Babylon with the statue. We see that in chapter 2, there's the impending rebellion. Chapter 3 tells us about the, the promise that Babylon's going to fall, and all of it's going to come from the hand of God. And so... As we get down towards the end, we see that statue where it's crushed by the rock and the whole thing represents one day that it's Christ. This means it points us to Christ that his kingdom is going to endure. And so as we see this kingdom falling, we, we see the promises of two and three being fulfilled. And then one day, the ultimate promise that all those earthly kingdoms are going to fall and Jesus' kingdom, which endures forever, is going to happen. So promises are being kept in chapter 5, which points us to Jesus, that one day his kingdom will endure forever. And God's comforting us through all of that. Also, Jesus willingly took on the sin of the world for us and ensuring our forgiveness. Daniel 5 is a story that God shows us he does not tolerate sin in any capacity whatsoever. But he's also merciful to us because he sent his son. At the end of chapter 5, the king dies for sin. Belshazzar dies. In a similar way, in the New Testament, the king, Jesus, dies for sin, not his own, but instead the sins of his children. He was perfect. Belshazzar was a wicked sinner. Jesus was perfect. And so Jesus dies for his sins, I'm sorry, for our sins, so that we can be forgiven forever. And so um, Daniel 5 points us to Christ over and over to continually trust in the gospel. Repent of our sin, be thankful for the new heart we've been given, and to trust in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this particular text that shows us that we have um, a desperate need for you. And I pray that we wouldn't be like Belshazzar, but instead um, 
our mind and our hearts will be pointed towards you and that we would trust in you and you alone for what you've done for us in Jesus. Be with us now as we go into the Lord's Supper and as we worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.